Okay, looks like we're at time, so we'll go ahead and return to our study of Martin Chemnitz in Caridian. We left off on page 120, page 120, and uh, an, a request to that for the sake of those listening online and to some degree just those listening in the room as well, if you could wait for the microphone to get to you for the comment and then you want to orient that thing like you're talking into it. If you kind of do one of these, you sort of talk over the top of it frequently and it doesn't, it doesn't get in. Or don't do the sideways thing. All the rap artists in the room are doing it sideways, upside down. Okay, so you've got to break yourself of that habit you use on Saturday nights at the club. And uh, instead, just kind of, kind of put it out in front of you like you're speaking directly into it. Okay, so Martin Chemnitz in Caridian, page 120, The Lord's Supper. I have a few introductory comments, and then we'll jump right in. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Okay, so we turn now from baptism to the Lord's Supper, the two great sacraments that Christ gives to his church, sacraments here in the proper sense, the mysteries that he gives to his church. And we're going to get into exactly what that means and why, these, why the Lord's Supper is counted as a sacrament along with baptism in the strict sense. And the rest pretty much isn't. But a few preliminary words, just so we don't lose the forest for the trees when it comes to communion. You may already have this practice or something like it, but it is very helpful if you have no other preparation on your way up to the altar to commune. If you ask yourself... At least these two questions, they're really right out of the large catechism. What is it that I'm receiving? And in answer, you give the Lord's own words. This is his body, this is his blood. Why am I receiving it? What, what benefit do I hope to receive by eating and drinking? The forgiveness of sins. Implicit in that, of course, is that I acknowledge I'm a sinner in need of forgiveness. So what is it, his body and blood, why am I receiving it for the forgiveness of sins? The third question that the catechism introduces, that I won't spend too much time on it, is who receives it worthily? That's the third question. And if you want to examine yourself to see if you're receiving it worthily, again, do you believe that you're a sinner in need of forgiveness? You just reverse engineer it, as it were. Yes, I do. Do I believe that it's his true body and blood? Yes, I do. Then you're worthy to receive it. You're worthy and well-prepared if you have faith in those words. Okay, so is complicated or intricate or wonderful or just inspiring as the doctrine of the Lord's Supper, the, the teachings we have from the scriptures and the church on this mystery, as fantastic as these things are, it's always and ever just that simple. The Lord's word, what he says, and do you believe it? Okay, let's jump in then on page 120, the Lord's Supper. First question, 248. What is the Lord's Supper or the sacrament of the altar? Answer, it is the true body 
and the true blood of our Lord Jesus Christ under the bread and wine for us Christians to eat and to drink, instituted by Christ himself for his remembrance. That'll sound very familiar to you because it's a paraphrase of the small catechism. So the true body and blood of Christ, there's, you know, again, we're not going to equivocate on anything. We're not going to import uncertainty into anything. So when we say it's the true body and blood of Christ, same body and blood that were in the womb of the Virgin Mary, born on Christmas, walked the earth, taught, crucified, nailed to the cross, risen from the dead. What body and blood are we receiving in our lips? That body and blood. So that's what's meant when it says it is the true body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. Under the bread and wine doesn't mean, obviously, that you you pick it up and there it is. Um, Nor does it mean that it's different from the word is. Sometimes when we see this other language of like in or with or under, we think there's something's moved. The goalpost has shifted or something. We're no longer talking about is. We've introduced another theory of under. Nothing could be further from the truth. Is and under have the exact same meaning. When Jesus says, this is my body, this bread is my body, and then we say, the body is under the bread, we Lutherans intend the exact same thing by those two statements. The language of under here, and in the small catechism, the language of in, with, and under, admittedly, was easier to understand in the 16th century than it is for us today. In the 16th century, they're all coming out of Roman Catholicism, and Roman Catholicism teaches, try to not get too deep into the forest, transubstantiation. And part of that doctrine is saying that the bread and wine are no longer there. The substance of the bread has become the body, the substance of the wine has become the blood in in such a way that what remains there is only form. So the language of in, with, and under is is a replacement of that transubstantiation theology. Is still means is. We're still receiving the body and blood of Christ. But what is there also, as Paul himself testifies in 1 Corinthians 10 and 1 Corinthians 11, is actually bread. So it is bread that is his body. Are you receiving bread or are you receiving body? Yes. (laughs) Are you receiving wine or are you receiving blood? Yes. Now, of course, in Roman Catholicism, as just mentioned, are you receiving bread or body? They'd say body only. And that's an error, but a minor error. That's where this language of in, with, and under comes from, is a corrective of that error. So the Roman Catholics, is it bread or is it body? They'll say body only, not bread. If you go to your local big box evangelical church, they'll tell you it's bread only and not body. <laughs> Obviously, one, one error is worse than the other. And in this case, the Roman Catholic error is less than the evangelical error. It is far better to know that his body and blood are truly there and make a mistake over the presence of bread and wine than it is to deny the body and blood of Christ and confess that only bread and wine are there. But just then to clarify and simplify, we Lutherans 
believe that you're receiving bread that is his body, wine that is his blood. Okay? And again, if, if you have any, like, okay, show me where that is in the Bible, go to 1 Corinthians 10. It won't take you any time to find the section on the Lord's Supper. Go to 1 Corinthians 11. It won't show you, take you any time to, to find uh, the, the section on the Lord's Supper. And notice that Paul refers to the consecrated species, whatever it is we're talking about, don't want to bias you, as both body and blood, and also bread and wine. So that's where the Lutheran doctrine comes from, is exactly St. Paul's doctrine. Okay, so again, just taking our time, laying the foundation, I hope it's not obnoxious or pedantic. I know most of you in the room already know this. But this is what we mean when we say it is the true body and the true blood of our Lord Jesus Christ under the bread and the wine. We're just confessing the bread and wine are there. So also are his body and his blood. Inseparable but distinct from, parallel to our Christology, the hypostatic union for those of you who understand that. He goes on, for us Christians to eat and to drink. So here we already see that it's for Christians, for disciples. And it's instituted by Christ himself for his remembrance. So there's that institution idea also. You know, if um, going back just to refresh your mind, if baptism is word and water, but you've got two little kids, you know, in the bathtub, two little four-year-olds in the bathtub or something, and one baptizes the other, is that a valid baptism? They have water and the word. No, it's not in accord with the institution of Christ. And so, too, we see that parallel here, instituted by Christ himself for his remembrance. So one can't simply take the Lord's Supper unto himself or herself and say, I'm going to do my own little... Jesus picnic, I'm going to commune right now. Um, It doesn't work that way. It's given to the church, and it's for the family to use together. So it needs to be in accord with Christ's institution. All right, any any questions or comments so far? Again, we're just laying the foundation here, and we'll be spending uh, more than a few of the next pages Maybe this is early I yeah. have to ask this, but if, if it is, you can go ahead and answer. Okay. But John 6 talks about eating uh, the body and drinking the blood. I think, that, I think we have distanced ourselves from connecting that with with the Lord's Supper. Is there a reason for that? or is it, um, So um, there's lots of different ways to answer the question, but maybe the quickest would be if you have a Book of Concord Reader's Edition, so it um, looks like this, you can go back to the index and look up John 6 and find the references. And what you'll see there is that um, the Book of Concord, the authors of the Book of Concord, aren't afraid in the least in referring to John 6 in sacramental terms and making sacramental points from it. Okay, so why I bring that up is because Luther, rather famously or infamously in his debates with another theologian by the name of Zwingli, Zwingli is the theological forefather of the modern evangelicals, on the, at least on the question of the Lord's Supper. He thinks that it, the, how does he put it, 
that the bread and the body are as far as earth is from heaven. So he's got a very different view than Christ who says, take, eat, take, drink, this right here is my body. This is my blood. Okay, Zwingli and Luther are having this debate. Zwingli kept wanting to go to John 6 because he thought he could find room around the periphery of that text to obfuscate and to uh, reframe. And Luther was just having none of it. Luther says this is a debate about the words of institution themselves, which take place in the gospel narratives of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and in St. Paul, 1 Corinthians 11. That's it. That's the data. Stop obfuscating. Stop taking us off course. You have to overturn that word, estin, is. Of course, as Luther, I, I think this is true anyway. I don't think it's been debunked. As the debate was raging on with Zwingli at some point, when Zwingli wasn't there apparently, uh, he had written hoc est corpus meum, which is the Latin for this is my body. He had written that on the table. And at some point, rather dramatically, to Zwingli unveils that and says, this is what the debate is about. Est, or estin in Greek. That is what the debate is about. Stop going around. Okay, that then has, you can see what he's doing and why he's doing it. It's not like he's got a cool, calm, collected, hey, do you think John 6 is about uh, the Lord's Supper or not? (laughs) I'm probably oversimplifying it a bit, but that's where the anti-sacramental tradition really finds its roots, its origin, and its strength. Meanwhile, the rest of the reformers, in um, less particular or occasion um, for uh, circumstances for making a specific confession more broadly, more objectively, they, they gladly incorporate the elements of John 6 into sacramental thinking. <clears throat> and then if you, if you go looking for any of the treatments by the church fathers, it's just practically universal that John 6 is read sacramentally. It's just unavoidable. Yeah, Because he, li- I mean, he literally says, eat my flesh and drink my blood, and you, and you will have life. <laughs> what he says there in John 6 is exactly what he says in the uh, upper room in the other of the Lord's Supper. Yes, sir. Uh, I was just thinking, I'm sorry, um, that uh, if you have, if it's too difficult for you to comprehend or accept that it's simultaneously our Lord's body and blood and bread and wine, mm-hmm then why wouldn't you then have more di- the same difficulty with the idea that Jesus is both God and man, right?
So you have a Christ who has a body and a Christ who doesn't have a body. Well, that's kind of a problem. <laughs> you've got two Christs, not one Christ. And now you've got a resurrection of the Nestorian heresy from the early church. So you're exactly right um, that the theology, again, specific to the Reformation and post-Reformation, the theology of the Lord's Supper is always ultimately a theology of Christology. Yep, one second. Can we point to Christ's appearances to the disciples after the resurrection as well? Sure you can. Yeah, so the idea that, um, well, a human body can only do what a human body can do or else it's not a human body, which is effectively the Zwinglian position. Unfortunately, it's largely the Calvinistic position also, is refuted even by the upper room appearance where the human body of Jesus very clearly does something that a human body cannot do. Namely, it appears in the midst of a room that is completely locked up with the hatches battened down for fear of the Jews. That's a text cited in opposition, and it does indeed refute it. And of course, those of you who have um, spent a number of years on the Lutheran bus, you probably already know this is the genus myostaticum that we're talking about. It's that loci of Christology where, um, where we say in the incarnation, the divinity is able to penetrate the humanity such that the humanity can do that which the divinity can do. It's a f- very simple version of the genus myostaticum. You can hear majesty, 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 myostaticum. So the majesty of the divine nature um, the human nature can all, it is what it is, but can always be more on account of the hypostatic hypostasis or personal union of the divine and the human. I know it gets really headsy really fast. Um, it's, not that, it's not really actually that complicated once you understand it all. Okay, so far so good. So then on to 249. What are the essential parts of this sacrament? One usually and rightly answers word and element. Okay, so we're back to word and sign, um, just like we were with uh, baptism. Here we are again. So word and element. But these must be rightly explained. For first, to the essence of this sacrament belong the outward elements of bread and wine. In the cup that Christ took, there was the fruit of the vine. Matthew twenty six twenty nine. These elements are taken according to the institution and are separated from common use for the purpose of this sacrament. Second, the word of institution of this sacrament is added to those elements, and by virtue of that word, that which is present, offered and received in the use of this supper is not only bread, not only wine, but the body of Christ, which was given for us, and the blood of Christ, which was shed for us for the remission of sins. Okay, I'd like, I'd like to pause right there. If you could put your finger in your text or make a little mark or whatever you want to do, because I'll just return right back to it. 
Okay. So it is like baptism because baptism consists of word in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and water. So too you have word, the words of institution, this is my body, this is my blood, and the elements, bread and wine. But what Chemnitz is here pointing out is there's an asymmetry. Those are the symmetrical elements that I've just described, but there's an asymmetry. Because in baptism, Jesus doesn't become the water. His body or his blood don't become the water. So there's something happening here in the Lord's Supper that is not happening in baptism. We Lutheran pastors sometimes have a tendency, I'm sure I've said it, to say, Jesus comes to you in water, in bread, and in wine. It's fine insofar as it goes, but its imprecision can lead to a faulty way of thinking. So we have to be careful with that. Because strictly speaking, he comes and pours water out upon you. He doesn't come in the water, at least not in the sense that he comes in the bread and in the wine. Those are two distinct aspects of these two different sacraments. Make sense? I hope so. I mean, it's fairly elementary. It just escapes us sometimes. Um, but that's all he's laying out here in the first or first part of the paragraph 249. So we'll pick up where we left off. And what is more, the word is added to the elements not only in the way in which Christ spoke it once at the first supper, but as Paul says, 1 Corinthians 10.16, the cup of blessing which we bless, namely through the words of Christ which we repeat in the administration of the Lord's Supper, and thus connect the bread and wine with the word of institution, so that in that sacrament we have neither the element alone nor the simple word, but, as Luther says, the word is clothed in the element, and the element connected with the word. Okay, well, you can see that the editor, if no one else, is playing with the idea of word here. Capital W, word, is how it ends. Small word is earlier in that sentence, along with, looks to be a preceding capital W word. Okay. <laughs> Again, all that's being articulated here is the other, it's just the other side of the coin of what it, we were just talking about. And that is that the word becomes one with the element. That's this business with the capital W. Christ becomes one with the bread. He becomes one with the wine. And even then, the way I'm saying it isn't quite specific enough. His body is one with the bread. His blood is one with the wine. So that's... And then, as St. Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 10... Is not the bread that we eat a koinonia, a communion in the body of Christ? It's a great verse to summarize everything we've learned so far. The bread that we eat is a communion in the body of Christ. What is it, Paul? Bread that is his body. So So in this sense, the words of institution affect the capital W word 
his body becoming one with the bread, his blood becoming one with the wine for us Christians to eat and to drink. Okay, I think I've done the best I can summarizing that paragraph. Got a little technical a little quick, didn't it, in some respects. Let's, let me see if you have any thoughts, reflections. Everything okay to, to move forward? Okay, good. So then 250, is the bread changed into the body of Christ so that it altogether loses its own substance? All right, we touched on this a moment ago. Let's see what Chemnitz has to say. The particular character of this sacrament requires that there be two distinct Things or substances which joined by sacramental union. See, that's the language I was using just a moment ago, not transubstantiation, just one substance becoming another substance, but sacramental union, two substances held together, analogous to the divine nature and the human nature held together in one personal union. So... Bread, one substance. Body, one substance held together in a sacramental union. Same with the wine and the blood. So again, just to regain the grammar, the particular character of this sacrament requires that there be two distinct things or substances which, joined by sacramental union, make one complete sacrament. Even as in the one person of Christ, there are two complete and distinct natures. For all antiquity uses this comparison. What he's saying is go back and look for the church fathers, and they use this all the time. This isn't a Lutheran invention. When they're teaching catechumens about the Lord's Supper, they're saying just as Christ is true God and true man, one person, so also the bread is his body, one sacrament. The wine is his blood, one sacrament. So it's not a Lutheran invention, and it predates Thomas Aquinas, predates transubstantiation and the Aristotelian rediscovery. Continuing on, but Paul mentions bread and wine also after the blessing. Okay, so he's, now Chemnitz is just articulating what I already have. In um, 1 Corinthians 10, 16 and eleven twenty seven. Paul mentions bread and wine also after the blessing. That means there's two substances there. The bread and wine remain as substances, so also are they joined to the substances of the body and blood. Chemnitz continues, likewise the fathers also taught the same in order to testify that they do not approve the papistic transubstantiation, they also usually used these terms, namely that in, with, and under the bread and wine, the body and blood of Christ are present, offered, and received. Okay, so as I said um, toward the beginning of the class, the language of in, with, and under isn't an alternative theology to the word is. In, with, and under are identical to the word is. In, with, and under are terms that are specifically over and against Roman Catholic transubstantiation. In, with, and under what? Bread and wine. That's the point of the language of in, with, and under. To highlight that bread is still there, that wine is still there. Just as the human nature is still there, though Christ is divine. Okay?
Yes, sir. What if you were standing there when the uh, when Jesus t- changed the water into wine? Wouldn't a skeptic look at the the jars and say that's water? <laughs> I mean, it, it's water. Yeah, I, I mean, there we have less specificity in terms of the nature of that miracle. It's not described nearly as thoroughly. But uh, there's an obvious connection that he turns uh, water into wine. And not every, you know, when, when, when the servants bring the cup to the master of the feast, he doesn't taste it and go, oh, this, this water really reminds me of wine. I'm, I'm drinking this, this water as a memorial to wine. Ooh, let's all pretend it's wine. Yeah, no, it, it, when he um, drinks the water become wine, he tastes wine. He res- and, and that ties in. So I know it's a little fast and loose, but if that's Jesus' first miracle, uh, try to do it your way, first miracle is turning water into wine, his last or nearly his last miracle, depending upon how one thinks about it, is turning wine into his blood. The first is done in the context of a wedding, so is the second. Because his I do to the church is that I do of going to the cross and giving his life. I mean, that's not to be too visceral with this theology, but that's part of the reason why he's stripped naked on the cross is this is the marriage, this is the consummation, this is the fullness of it. Um, to receive his body and blood in your own body and blood is to become what? One flesh with Christ. What does God do in marriage? The two become one flesh. So there's a really rich and, and deep uh, marital theology um, always tied into the sacramental theology. And again, it's self-evident just if you, if you know that um, you know, God before the foundation of the world intended for, uh, I mean, it's a love story. The father intended to create a bride for his son and that the two would come together. So then everything created after that reflects that fact, including earthly marriages. So God designs it in such a way that the two become one flesh. In fact, it's even a little richer than that, the mystery to which Paul refers, because um, Eve is taken from Adam and then returned to Adam to be one flesh with him. So too are we made through the Son and come from the Son to be returned to the Son and become one flesh with him. Not only to become bone of his bone, flesh of his flesh, not only to become one flesh with him and have his blood as our blood, shared life blood, but as Peter commented last night, if you were at the Ash Wednesday service, to be partakers of the divine nature. When we first came forth from him, we weren't partakers of the divine nature um, any more than Eve was a partaker any longer of Adam. But she's returned to the one flesh union of Adam, and we're returned to the one flesh union with Christ. And so, because he is divine, we become partakers of the divine nature. It can't be other. If you're one with Christ and Christ is divine, you're a partaker of the divine nature. Now, communion is so beautiful in this fact, because as you partake of the bread, you're partaking of the body. As you partake of the body, you're partaking of the divinity. So even in the Lord's Supper, you become a partaker of the divine nature. It's why Paul or why Peter uses that language 
Um, we, don't, we don't become New Age, we don't become Mormon, we don't become Eastern Orthodox in affirming what the scriptures and what the church has always taught in regard to these things. Okay, I forget which question I was answering. Sorry about that. Anything else we want to touch on? Okay, a couple more. It's something you just said. uh, Because of the divine nature of the body, bread, um, is that why it's such a bad thing to do it wrongly? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So um, we'll probably get there. In fact, I know we will with Chemnitz. Just very briefly then, and, and we'll flesh it up further down the road. This is yet another distinction between baptism and the Lord's Supper. Nowhere in Scripture is there a warning per se in regard to baptism, receiving baptism without examining oneself, or receiving baptism in such a in a wrong way, such that you become guilty of, you know, some great uh, offense and sin against God, and with the consequences, you become weak, sick, and die. Those things are never stated in regard to baptism, but they are stated in regard to the Lord's Supper. And part of that is, is exactly, yeah, what you mentioned. You're, you're coming into contact with the holiest of all things. You're coming into contact with the divine one. I know, I, I know we don't all realize this every time we commune. I don't. <laughs> but you're doing something no less stunning than if you had existed in the days of Solomon and you had walked up to the temple entered the outer courtyard, walked up to the, to the pillars, and walked through the door into the holy, the holy place, saw the showbread on your right, saw the altar of incense right before you, saw the candelabra, saw the curtain separating the holy place from the holiest of holies. And you went in and up to that curtain and opened it and came into the presence of the Ark of the Covenant and the cherubim, where people who did that unauthorized indeed got sick, leprosy in one case, or died in other cases. That is what we are doing in the Lord's Supper, but I would argue with even a step above and beyond that. Because while they're going into the Old Testament temple, we are going into the New Testament temple. That's what Christ himself says. Destroy this body in three days, or this temple in three days, and I will raise it up again. He's talking about his body. So as you partake of his body, you are entering that temple. You are going into communion with the divine. If you go into the communion with the divine, going, I don't believe anything about this stupid temple. I'm just going to walk in here. Or, uh, I'm just going to walk in here and remember it. These people are idiots. You're taking your life into your hands. You're taking your life into your hands. So, um, yes, this is why Paul talks about those who are partaking of it wrongly, not just becoming guilty of defaming the temple, but guilty of the very body and blood of Christ, which is our temple, and with dire consequences because they're coming into contact with the divine while simultaneously calling him a liar. Not a good recipe. 
And this then, too, as you understand these things, I mean, there's a simpler way to get here, but as you understand these things, you also understand the necessity of, quote-unquote, closed communion, which is kind of an ugly label slapped on something that is just fundamentally true. You can't let somebody stumble unwittingly into the holiest of holies. That's terrible stewardship. You can't let somebody come into the holiest of holies if you love them in the least. If they say, I don't believe it, but I want to go in there anyway, I'm entitled to it. You have to be like, no, are you crazy? You can't do that. So that's the stewardship of pastors as just as the Levites and Levitical priests were stewards of the temple, pastors are stewards of the new temple, and we can't just bring people willy-nilly to become partakers of the divine nature unless they believe, unless they are disciples, unless they are catechized, unless they are penitent, etc., etc. Yes, please. Uh, yeah. Oh, oh, yes, please. Go ahead. Oh, just to, I was thinking the language of uh, using under, and under the bread and the wine, something yeah. else that is under is the the root of the plant that makes the grain. So it's mm. like taking the whole thing. Yeah, yeah. The, lang- the language of in, with, and under is just saying the substance of bread, the substance of wine are there. It's in the bread, with the bread, under the bread. You know, it's not in such a way that it destroys the bread. That's the point. So it's a confession that there are these two substances. She just... It's not a biblical way of speaking, but you have to speak this way to people who are, who, whose confession is based upon Aristotle's notion of substances, which is the Thomistic, the Thomas Aquinas understanding that Lutherans are coming out of in the 16th century when they're formulating these modes of expression. I mean, I don't think it's particularly helpful to us today. Our context is almost the polar opposite. And sometimes the language of in, with, and under can even be misleading because they'll think, oh, you're, you're waffling. You don't really believe it's is. You believe it's in, with, and under. You know, it's just, it couldn't be more backwards. And of course, as is often the case, pastors who are no longer trained with the Incaridian, uh, you know, fall into this stupid way of thinking too. And they, they, they end up not even knowing what they're talking about. And they end up putting forward some idea of like, well... In with and under, not is. It's like, what? You've just departed from, from the entire small C Catholic church. You've just departed from the scriptures. On what? Nothing less than the New Testament itself. I, I get really uh, worked up about all that. Pastors of all people should know better. Please. Um, one of the distinctions that just kind of flew into my mind, too, between baptism and Holy Communion is baptism is supposed to be a one-time event. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And, and it's a big exclamation mark. I'm not going to take anything away from that. Mm-hmm. And Holy Communion, take it as often as, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. over and over and over and over. So if we develop a bad habit in how we take Holy Communion, mm-hmm. it only reinforces what it is not. And we have to be very careful and protect that, I was thinking, um, because bad habits are hard to overcome. Absolutely. But. Yeah, absolutely. I, and, and maybe just I'll take advantage. Um, if, you're a, if you're a father or a grandfather and you go to church with your kiddos and they're communing, why not quiz them? Um, if, if they're communing, hey, what is it that you're receiving? Hopefully they say the body and blood of Christ. Usually little kids do. I find little kids confess the supper just fine. 
and uh, why are you receiving it? For the forgiveness of sins. That's uh, great. And if they don't have the right answer, put the right answer in, you know, in, into, their, into their hearts, in their ears, and upon their lips. And um, So it's a, good, it's a good thing to do to just realize those to whom God has given you authority over, make sure they're partaking rightly, you know, and, and have that stewardship over them. Yeah. Okay, great comments. Shall we go on? 251. But when consecration has been performed, as they say, or the words of institution have been recited over the elements, are the body and blood of Christ present, even if the elements are neither offered nor received, but are laid up, enclosed, or carried about? Okay, good question. Of course, what's in the background is the medieval practice um, where the elements, so bread and wine would be taken, the words of institution would be recited over them, just like we do in the divine service. But then instead of eating and drinking in accord with Christ's institution, it's placed into a tabernacle, a red candle is lit, and everybody meditates and worships and adores and prays. Or it's put on a pole, a monstrance, and sometimes paraded where we get the Corpus Christi, which is the body of Christ, the Corpus Christi parade. Sorry to that town in Texas. Um, are these things that we're supposed to be doing? Are we supposed to be taking the consecrated bread and wine that, that are his body and blood and then putting them in a tabernacle or a monstrance for these other purposes? Okay, the question again, um, as I've been describing it, the question's a little more narrow, and I just don't want to lose the specificity. But when consecration has been performed, as they say, or the words of institution have been recited over the elements, are the body and blood of Christ present, even if the elements are neither offered nor received, but are laid up, enclosed, or carried about? Answer, Christ did not institute this sacrament in such a way that even if no one uses it, or if it is changed into something else than he himself commanded, it nevertheless is his body and blood. But in the very words of institution, he prescribed the form of that which was commanded, how it is to be observed and used, and that not only for a time, but to the end of the world. 1 Corinthians 11.26 And use surely does not make a sacrament, but the word, ordinance, and institution of Christ. And there is a difference between the essence of a sacrament and its use. But Christ so ordered and arranged the words of institution in the form of a testament as he wanted this sacrament to be an act in which bread and wine are taken, blessed or consecrated, as they, uh, as they say, then offered, received, eaten, and drunk. And Christ says of that which is blessed, which is offered, received, eaten, and drunk, this is my body, this is my blood. Therefore, when the bread is indeed blessed, but neither distributed nor received, but enclosed, shown, and carried about, 
It is surely clear that the whole word of institution is not added to the element, for this part is lacking. He gave it to them and said, Take and eat. And when the word of institution is incomplete, there can be no complete sacrament. In the same way, it is also not true baptism if the word is indeed spoken over the water, but if there is no one who is baptized. <laughs> All right, Chemnitz, nailing it with the last line. Baptism is to be received by people or it's no baptism. The Lord's Supper is to be received by people or it's no Lord's Supper. It really is that simple, and it's on the basis of Christ's own words, take, eat, take, drink. Okay, let me see if I can find it. This jogged my memory to something we had earlier. Bear with me here. It's going to be, for those of you listening online, it's going to be quiet for just a minute while I try to find this. Yes, this is worth looking at in this context so that we don't go too far off onto one direction. Back under question 249, six lines down, uh, right in the middle, you'll see the word second. Everybody kind of tracking with me? Yeah, no? Okay, second. All right, here's what I want to highlight for you. Second, the word of institution of this sacrament is added to those elements. And by virtue of that word, that which is present, offered, now this is offered to the people, not offered to God. Okay, present, offered, and received in your mouth, on your hand. In the use of this supper is not only bread, not only wine, but the body of Christ which is given for us and the blood of Christ which is shed for us. So what is being said? Very clearly, Chemnitz is teaching that it is the body of Christ before you eat it. It is the blood of Christ before you drink it. There's a later theory, and listen, I'm not trying to condemn anyone. I know many faithful Lutheran pastors believe this theory. I think this theory even comes from uh, Wilhelm Lea and some of the more conservative Lutherans in our American Lutheran history. But this idea that you're sort of waiting, because it's not, a, it's not an actual sacrament until the entirety of the sacramental action. See how that's the other side of the, of the question we're attaining. It's not an actual sacrament until the entire action of the sacrament is complete. means that like it's not really the body of Christ until it hits your lips, or it's not really the blood of Christ. Until it, that's going too far. That's crazy. No, no, nobody really thinks that. Jesus says, Jesus isn't walking around the table to his disciples going, and this is my body. Is my body. That's not what's happening. He takes bread, he breaks it, and he says, take, eat, this is my body. 
He gives them his body. It's already his body, and he distributes it. I'm pointing that out because that is the older position. That's the position of the church fathers. It's the position of the scriptures, I've just argued. It's the position of Chemnitz and the Lutheran reformers. It's only an after-reflection of this kind of theology where you get this kind of receptionism. That's what it's called, where it's not actually the body and blood of Christ until it's in your lips. It's just taking this principle articulated in 251 way too far. Okay. So I hope that's helpful and not confusing. I did want to make that clarification. Now, if, if it is... So imagine with me a hypothetical situation just to round out the conversation. And I'll try to make it as difficult as I can. Not a, not a straw man, but, but an iron man argument if I can. Imagine in a, in a Roman Catholic church, let's say, um, and you have a pastor and a people, and they very much understand and believe the words of Christ, and the, the words of institution are spoken. This is my body, this is my blood. They all commune as they should. They, dr- they eat the body, they drink the blood. Now, that in and of itself is kind of rare in the Roman circles, but that's an aside. They eat the body and drink the blood for the sake of our Iron Man that we're presenting here, um, would we have any reason to doubt that they're receiving the body and blood of Christ? No. Now, what if they take what's left over, the reliquy is what it's called. That's the fancy word for leftovers. We don't want to be impious. They take the leftovers and they put it in the tabernacle and then have everybody adore and pray. Or they put, it on, put the host on a, on a monstrous, they put the bread that is his body on a monstrous and parade it around. Okay. At the moment in which they go outside of the sacramental action of taking and eating and put it in a tabernacle to be worshipped or put it on a monstrance to be worshipped, would we then say that that's the true body and blood of Christ? Lutherans would say no. Lutherans would say that's an abuse. If it is the body and blood of Christ, it is just enough to be abused, and then no longer. And that, that would be, the, I, I, again, I'm trying to make this as difficult as we can, I'm not trying to make this easy on me, I'm trying to make the most difficult possible situation so that we can articulate and understand the principles that Chemnitz is confessing here, okay? It objectively is the body and blood of Christ. An abuse, a true abuse, cancels that reality. And the, and the idea, again, stems from the Lord's words that he says, look, this is for you to eat and drink. Insofar as you eat and drink it, it is yours, and it is what, what I give to you. Insofar as you do a bunch of other nonsense, I don't promise that this is my body and blood for the forgiveness of your sins whatsoever. My body and blood is given for you to eat and drink. I don't give you any guarantee or promise that it's my body and blood that you suddenly put up on a pole or in a tabernacle to worship. Okay, does that hopefully... All right. Always a danger to do more harm than good and do more confusing than clarifying, but my intent then um, is to really accurately articulate Chemnitz's point, and then by extension, because this is the Enchiridion, that which all the Lutheran pastors of this area were to believe at the time and, and the faithful ones continue to do. Yes. Okay, for what it's worth, I have thought that in the wedding at Cana, mm-hmm. and when I'm thinking about it now, even in the feeding of the 5,000, 
We do not hear Christ say, this is, this is. He gives it to the disciples to distribute. Mm-hmm. And it's in the distribution that the people receive it. I don't, I, I'm not trying to be argumentative. Okay. I, do, I don't think that's the case. If you look, the servant takes the water now become wine. And brings it to the master. It's already there. It's not like he brings it water and then the master puts it to his lips and suddenly it's wine. Well, I'm thinking of the ringing of the bell with the Roman Catholics. And I know it was a big issue in the Evangelical Lutheran Church about saying, it becomes the body at this time. And there was a big... Yeah, that's kind of a silly argument. And just, I think, German Lutherans board in the frontier, by and large... But um, this is a great... So, so one of the things that would happen, obviously it's just a reality in agrarian lifestyle, is you've got farmers who can't go to divine service or can't go to every service where community... Maybe they can go to a divine service a week, but they can't go to all the divine services where the sacrament is being offered. Obviously, you've got bells being rung outside the church to let people know when service is starting. It becomes also practice that at various times in the liturgy, bells would be rung so that those outside in the community could know where they were. A farmer could actually stop. Why are the bells being rung now? They're praying the Lord's Prayer. And a farmer could actually stop in the field or continue his work, but pray with all the people of God who were gathered there. So that's the origin of that practice. And then bells began to be rang at, this is my body and this is my blood, so that they could take a moment of, of piety and reverence. And, and even though they couldn't be there to receive the sacrament, they'd know that that was, was what was going on. Okay. Then, um, obviously, when do you ring the bells? <laughs> After the words, this is my body, at the word is, after the entire statement, nonsense. I mean, this is a silly argument, okay? But that's, that'll give you a little historical context there. I like it. We've got some bells. We can have Chris ring the bells. Um, but no, it's, uh, I, think, I think the enduring, um, and I'm not really being serious. I don't think we need it. Um, but the enduring, uh, those churches that retain it, the enduring purpose is to remind people that these words are not the words of that pastor, per se. These are the words of Jesus. And because they're the words of Jesus, they're powerful. And that which was just common bread, that which was just common wine, is now the body and blood of Christ given and shed for us Christians to eat and to drink. So there is some power where those, um, where those bells still exist at or around the words of institution. Um, I've been to some Lutheran churches that retain that. I think it's beautiful. I think it's wonderful. Typically they ring at is, or um, right after the statement, this is my body. Yeah, but differs from place to place. Uh, was there another question or comment? We're okay? Okay, what did we do? Do we wrap up 251? And we didn't start 252? Let's start 252 next week then. The Lord be with you. Amen.